This is the Powered Up Podcast, show number four. My my dream here is to plan a lesson or plan a maybe even a whole unit where um, the student gets a certification at the end of it. And so, and using like real text and real everything, but I, w- I want it to be something that is applicable. Welcome to a real world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. What's up, everyone? This is Ken Ehrman, host of the Powered Up Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, Mr. Matt Horse and Buggy Rogers. Oh, man. Matt, how are you today? You know what? I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well, very well. Um, so what I want to ask you before we jump into our show today is what is one unique obstacle that you face with your students that would be very specific to your demographic and community? That's an awesome question. Um, and I think it's one of those things that uh, luckily I don't face this challenge on my own. Um, and, and I know we'll talk about it a little bit in the, the interview later today is where I teach deals with plenty of poverty um, and what I'll refer to as the forgotten community. Um, I teach in a very rural uh, horse and buggy Amish centric community. Uh, school district. And so I I think what you hear a lot because it's high density is urban populations and the challenges they face, Uh, but uh, maybe not so much credit given for the the rural um, population. I know where I teach specifically, we have one bus system that runs through the major part of town. Um, So with a huge school district with maybe not that large of a total number of families and and uh really spread out uh if you cannot be close to the main drag strip uh in our town it's difficult to get out of that town so you have transportation issues or you want to try a different career and you can't drive Um, if you're not close to the bus system it's really difficult I think that also kind of then ties into, right? So families uh, tend to stay and generation after generation are at my school. And um, sometimes they get frustrated with um, opportunities or um, are they able to, to reach for hopes and dreams if they've um, been held back because of poverty. But um, what's incredible is our district, after really recognizing how much poverty and um, uh, how limiting that can be in our, our location, um, have created so many sources of support for the community, um, and creating a school, not necessarily just as an instructional hub, but, um, caretaking hub. Um, I think it's interesting. We'll interview, um, uh, 
a much more qualified person to talk about rural education in a little bit, but um, to hear the perspective of bringing services to the kids, um, that's something that I know I've been uh, just incredibly grateful for what my school district has done. I think the hardest limit is making sure that they actually use it. Absolutely. And I, what I enjoyed about the interview with that we just finished up is the focus is his rural community, but it's really a bigger topic. And that's um, your students and your community has specific needs based on where you're teaching geographically and demographically. And, you know, it's really important to be aware of that, to uh, be in tune with the community that your your students live in. And it's what will help you become a more effective educator. You know, um, my district is not the same profile at all as to what you and Wade talk about. But um, when you look at my district specifically, our our district is very um, diverse in the sense that school by school, especially at the elementary level, is very different. Even at the middle school level, we have one high school. So... Um, we have those strong needs in certain areas in certain schools and others don't have those, but they have different needs. And so, you know, it's important for those schools to understand their micro community and it's under, it's important for people at higher balconies to understand the very diverse needs of the individual schools. Um, so our interview today is with, uh, Wade Owlett. A fantastic interview. Matt and I just finished it up. He, he just offered uh, great nugget after great nugget. Um, the look at his lesson was really interesting. He threw us for a uh, he threw us a curveball, which was which was fun and and unexpected. Um, so Matt, anything that you want to add before we jump into our interview? Well, I think it's uh, a really cool opportunity because not a lot of teachers have the opportunity to to see into the world of um, rural education, or even just the perspective of something that doesn't look like your classroom. And I think sometimes I only look for resources that match my classroom or my demographic to have an open mindset to, hey, what can I learn from someone uh, that's doing the same position with different circumstances? I found that uh, even though I would consider myself a rural education teacher, uh, not quite to the point as Wade. So a uh, really great interview and uh, enjoy the listen. Well, without any further delay, let's get into the interview with Wade Allett. Wade, welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. We're super happy to have you here. How are you? I am pretty well. How are you? We're doing very well. Um, so Wade and I first met at the 2019 PA Teacher of the Year Conference, where we were both recognized as not being the winner. Uh, but we did have an amazing experience together, got to know each other a little bit in sessions and, and just um, some fun activities together. Uh, from that point, I went on to do nothing and earn zero accolades. However, Wade went on to uh, be recognized as the National Rural Teacher of the Year. So, um, Wade, kudos for continuing on a prestigious path, um, unlike myself. Um, but why don't you just introduce yourself and just uh, give our audience a little bit of background on on who you are and, and what you've uh, done in your teaching career so far? Sure. I um, So I am a fifth grade teacher this year. I have taught elementary for about 15 years now. 
Um, don't do the math. That makes me older than, than I'd like to admit right now. Um, so I, I've taught in rural Pennsylvania in the same classroom even uh, the whole time. Um, and we've gone through a lot of changes. Um, I, I like to call them like generations of change. Um, we've done like LFS, we've done mass customized, and lately, um, as everybody, uh, we've been uh, delving into the generation of virtual learning. Um, but I, our school is about 300 students, so it's uh, very small, it's K to six. And um, yeah, I've just just been teaching uh, teaching there. I teach um, ELA uh, primarily. I do social studies as well. Um, and yeah, that's kind of my my little niche. Excellent. So um, the first thing I think I want to dive into is this idea of the rural education. You know, the area you teach, and obviously being recognized with that that specialization. Um, in the award you received. Um, and, you know, to give some geographic perspective to our non-Pennsylvania listeners, uh, Pennsylvania, you think of Philadelphia, you think of Pittsburgh, and you have surrounding suburbs, which are um, highly populated, and you have a large center of the state that is much different from those those bookends, um, especially as you get um, into Wade's area, which is, ver- is the northern tip, um, very close to New York. So, what is it about rural education or your area that is different? Is different for you, and it's different for the student experience. I so when when we speak of rural education here in Pennsylvania, it is it is very different from the urban areas. Um, when you look at uh, resources available, especially, um, but also just kind of like work ethic and um, it, it just community. It, it just looks a little bit different. Um, not better, not worse, just just a little bit different. And um, so I think uh, if I'm looking at my community and and what we what we do and what we stand for, um, it's just a it's just a place where where everybody knows each other and we're very connected. Um, yeah, I guess that's, does that answer your question? I don't No, it, it does. And, and Matt, so you, you're kind of smashed between not, not, not Philadelphia, but some higher populated areas in Pennsylvania. Um, and your community is definitely a little bit more rural. So, you know, do you want to jump in here? How does, how do you see that impacting your school and your classroom and, and the way it defines your community? Yeah, so I mean, um, and Wade, please chime in if you feel like you either relate or, or don't feel the same way. I, I feel much like uh, the rural area that I teach in is much the forgotten territory. Um, so I teach in an area where it's in between Philadelphia, Harrisburg. If you get kind of um, to eastern Pennsylvania, you have like your Westchester, King of Prussia Mall area. Um, outside of Philadelphia, and you have Lancaster County, which is famous for its uh, Amish population. And we are kind of like that commuting area in between uh, that kind of off the what we call uh, the main line in the Philadelphia area. So um, we definitely have uh, many of the features of rural uh, environment. So plenty of farmland, um, 
limited population. Um, the difference I would imagine, Wade, is we have access within 20 to 25 minutes to a fairly large city um, in almost every direction that we would head. Um, it just so happens that that kind of territory of our school district is is pretty desolate um, in the sense of like community center, um, which has actually translated to um, a lot of effort through the, the community I teach in to develop a, a, um, a center, which is really neat. Um, just it's not naturally occurring from the, um, I guess, the, the structure of government or, or city. I have a completely useless story to insert here before I ask you your next question, Wade, but it's, um, it's in your area. So I boxed in college and I was at Mansfield University, which I know is borders your district. Um, I was there to actually support one of our other fighters. He was the only fighter that, that we, the only fighter we brought and he was the main event. So we had to weigh in at 9am and we had to wait till 9pm for him to fight. And we didn't want him to sit around the gym all day. So we said, well, what can we do? Let's go see a movie. The closest movie theater we found was in New York state. And it was a single theater movie theater, which was much different than the experience that I grew up as, as a kid. So, you know, when you, when you were talking about your area, you mentioned difference in resources. So let's, let's uh, look at that from two lenses. 15 years ago, what was the difference in resources that you think your school district had compared to some of our higher populated areas? Um, and, and then again, now, what are those resources that are different uh, because of the area that you live in? Yeah, um, so I think like, <clears throat> before I answer that question, I, I looking at resources, um, another, another thing that sets our area apart and not necessarily in a good way is um, just the extreme poverty. And I think that is um, a really prevalent um, characteristic of, of um, rural areas as well. Uh, my school district is right around, uh, last year I think it was like 60% um, uh, poverty, but this year we, we kind of hit the hit the jackpot, so to speak, and now we are 70%. Um, so uh, it comes with um, a little bit more funding, but it's just the devastation and disparity that poverty brings to rural areas, I think is forgotten. Um, so when I, when I speak, um, I try to really bring light to um, that, that disparity and, and, and even the resilience in that. But um, so when we look at resources then, um, we aren't starting at zero like everybody else. We're starting at a negative number. And so we're, we're trying to just get resources to bring us back up to that level playing field um, to give our, kid, our kids a chance. Um, so looking at 15 years ago, um, I remember when I first started teaching, there wasn't even like a, like a, a I wanna say a fiber optic line where there could be internet even in the, in the area. Like the school district was the organization that brought internet to just our schools like they, they funded it themselves um to to just bring the internet like there wasn't internet when i first started <laughs> in my school um and and even now 15 years later we're still looking at that problem um with cell reception or um, internet uh, and and as you as as you know i'm sure 
looking at that disparity, um, we have children who aren't able to learn virtually because they don't have the internet. And it's not even, it's not even like it's, it's something that they um, could have, but can't. It's like, it's not even an option, like in the, in our area for a lot of our children. So um, we see right now that gap really widening. Um, and that's, that's something that we're really trying to I don't know, use the resources that we have and um, try to try to close that gap a little bit. But um, it takes that's that's a bigger that's a bigger thing um, going on at a larger scale um, statewide. So um, all we can do right now is just kind of um, petition and hope for that change. Yeah. Well, and I, I know from from my end being in a similar circumstances, so we're in that 50 to 60 percent range. And it's one of those where um, it is a um, maybe not well known enough um, challenge of that poverty. And uh, I'd love for you to kind of before we kind of dive into your career, go get your perspective. I know you had the opportunity to come to our district and see some things. But one of the things that always sticks with me is our superintendent talks about um having a, not necessarily realistic, but creating an environment where the kids have access to their first choice, recognizing that where we live and the resources we have, some of the kids may not go into um, college. Uh, so we have a huge sector that we create for career readiness. And I think just in the community that we have, similar to yours, um, that has to be a realistic perspective of what is that scope and sequence for uh, you may have them at the earlier stages in their career, but um, when it comes to that, uh, we spend a whole lot of time talking about access and, and equality, and we included technology, but um, even the challenges of family members having um, the navigation skills to say, help, here's a hotspot on the device. How do I get that to work to, to get online um, and participate is a huge barrier beyond um, just the idea of, hey, you sign on at this time and um, we'll take care of the rest. It's not a realistic possibility. Yeah, I, I've been looking into, um, and this, this kind of came to me through, um, through, through a couple organizations with the National Rural uh, Education Association, um, looking at like place-based education um, and how like being proud of your, your place that you are um, really feeds back into um, uh, kids or students or adults then coming back and, and bringing resources with them. Um, and so that's something I've been kind of interested in lately is, is using place-based education as like the lens through which to teach um, curriculum. And so that's something I'm kind of just kind of like hawing over in my mind and how, how, to, how to make that a reality. If you had to um, define things that you value in instilling in your students when they're with you for for the year, um, beyond the standards that are, are attached to your grade level that you're, you're teaching, what would you define as those skills? Because I think I think that really varies, you know, on this topic of, of where you're teaching the population of students that you're teaching. Um, I know that just from our time together, I know that 
you you teach the whole child. I could tell that very quickly uh, in our conversation. So, you know, what would you say are some of those skills or characteristics that you really focus on for the school year when you're with your students? Yeah, I think I think the the most important thing that I that I try to focus on is consistency. Um, so if we're looking at um, students who um, are at risk um, because of poverty or, or whatever, um, what they really need is a consistent person in their life. Um, so so that consistency tries. I try to I try to really focus on that and translate into. Um, showing showing the student that I care for them, but also um, that I'm going to show up and and do what I'm do what I'm here to do. Um, uh, so so yeah, just bringing that consistency and um, that stable person. Uh, so many of our our students don't have uh, stability or consistency in their uh, regular lives. Um, I I've always just thought that that was that was kind of my goal. Um, to 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 be that stable, uh, I don't I don't know. I always I always uh, talk about um, how our classroom is a family. You guys probably do the same thing, um, but I I talk about how I'm like it's my job to be like that that stable that stable figure in your life right now. So that's that's fantastic, yeah. and and I I know Matt does it, and and I was the same way, um, and I truly believe the best thing you can do as a teacher to make a student feel that way is to just be honest and actually feel that way. You know, if you're putting on a show that you want to be that stable figure, but you're not actually there for them, um, they're going to figure it out fast. Um, but if you had to offer advice, to say our, our newer teacher population or just anyone that is trying to hone that skill a little bit more of, of really establishing effective classroom culture. Are there any specific activities or skills or approaches that you take other than being real and honest and true to yourself? Yeah, I, I mean, just just be real and honest. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good place to start. And just just let yourself be vulnerable. Like I remember when I first started, and like I wanted to like have that you know, stature or posture of a teacher. You guys remember what that was all about. And it's just, it's Absolutely. like, it, it was, it became evident pretty quickly that kids, first of all, they see through that, but also it's just not, not effective. So just like, just like for a new teacher, be yourself, laugh at yourself, be goofy, let your voice crack. Like, it's okay. <laughs> they don't have a choice. They have to come back tomorrow. Exactly. Anyway, so. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> So you talked about um, some of your experience, and you ma- you mentioned mass customized learning. So um, I'd like to dive into that topic a little bit because I don't think a lot of people know what it is, um, and at the same time, others might know and want to and want to understand more. So Matt, your district has been using it for a while. So can you quickly kind of just define? what mass customized learning is from your perspective and then Wade why don't you jump in and just share kind of what that journey has looked like for your district yeah so uh, mass customized learning uh, I know even in our district we struggled with the name 
because it sounds like an oxymoron. Um, how do you, without creating an IEP for every single kid, how do you um, do that, but also realistically create opportunities um, that are specific to each kid? Uh, we're slightly larger uh, than, than Wade. I have 400 kids in my building, but um, pretty standard classroom sizes. And the, the whole concept of MCL is, creating a, a pathway that does not follow traditional brick and mortar um, 1940s or before classroom practices. So kids have the opportunity to excel in different areas that they find interest in. Um, it really taps into their intrinsic motivation. If they really want to um, enhance their skills and progress through learning, um, because they're motivated or they know that how hard they work uh, determines when they finish a grade level as opposed to just waiting 180 days and knowing that maybe next year you'll be challenged and then come to the end of that year and hopefully next year you'll be challenged. Um, the, the whole concept is creating opportunities where uh, there's many check-ins for understanding um, and it's built off mastery learning um, where, where learners will prove that they understand the concepts um, that are put in front of them um, as in a um, variety of different ways, not traditional um, uh, summative assessments that we are so used to and um, just plug in towards the middle as classroom teachers. Um, I know that's the big general shift. Um, it really made a, a, a change in our high school. As I was mentioning, our high school has become almost like a ghost town um, through this because we have so many kids leaving for real world opportunities, internships and um, college opportunities and um, working in the field. Uh, so that's where it then trickled down to the elementary level. Um, Wade, you're welcome to, to jump on it. I can keep on talking or maybe we'll just kind of talk back and forth about it. Yeah, I think... So for us, it started with a complete overhaul of the curriculum, and I think I think that was probably the same for you. Absolutely, um, and that yep. was that was a really long, tedious process, and looking at how those learning progressions um, build towards mastery of skills. Um, and so when we we did that, and we, we're a pretty small school as well, um, a small staff, um, that led into creating rubrics. Um, um, and moving from a traditional number grade to um, a skill-based rubric, and um, so then, so so that progressed as well into uh, reteaching or um, educating the community on what that looks like and why that's useful, um, as opposed to a traditional number grade, um, and that was that was a, that was another long process, and and then. So, so it just kind of is a thing of its own. I think it's a very organic um, living thing. All of our uh, curriculum assessments and all of that just kind of take new forms every year based on the kids, and that's kind of cool. Um, so yeah, I, I like it. It keeps it keeps um, it keeps it fresh for you as the educator, but it also keeps it meaningful uh, for the student. So that's yeah, that's where we are. So from my perspective of someone who's never, who's never officially taught in, in mass customized learning, but someone who in my own classroom, I was 
very focused on personalized learning, um, very much use those principles, but more on a, on the fly doing it myself, figuring it out myself kind of basis. How, how did, how did you, um, adjust to that change initially? And, and, you know, how do you think your, your colleagues, um, did as well with, with this idea of, of really being non-traditional in so many ways? Yeah, it's, yeah, for me, for me, I had to, so I, I use the analogy of, um, like we had all of these things that needed to go in pigeonholes, but we had to build the pigeonholes first. And so for me, it was a really, that, that initial part was a struggle of getting, um, not 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 having the information but understanding where the information goes um, but once once you start it's kind of like a puzzle once you start getting the pieces um, together and you start start to see the big picture then it gets easier and easier yeah and I, I would also add I think just to, to give context to the listeners so one of the hard part was getting rid of titles um, I was no longer a fourth grade teacher I was a facilitator responsible for a range of curricular items, um, and that may change. I may be teaching sixth graders one day and third graders a few days later um, in all realistic times. And one of the hardest parts for us, besides the curriculum shift, was the schedule. Um, and so our building adopted essentially two major groups, the primary and then the it's weird to say secondary, but kind of the, the second half of upper elementary. Um, and we were kind of at that precipice of really jumping into blurring those lines. And I think, Wade, you got a little bit further into that than we did. Um, we really got into mixing third and fourth grade students pretty well and um, creating opportunities for high fourth graders to move into fifth grade curriculum. Um, but I've never experienced, and I'd love for you to talk about this, I've never experienced data and the resources be so valuable so quickly in instruction that it was um, a combination of really beneficial um, to know your learners but also really important to know who you're working with next week yeah i I would agree yeah so and that I would say also our, our population is, is so small that you, you kind of could predict that a little bit, but yeah, using that data to, um, to build, build your class for the next curriculum. Yeah, that was, that was a challenge as well. Um, but it was fun too. Like it just like, I always, I always liked that because it was like, you know, a whole new, uh, a whole new challenge or new like way of teaching for the next, the next, uh, set. Um, so that was, that was fun too. And it also like, it it lent itself really well to, um, teaching classroom procedures and expectations. So you were always kind of reviewing that as your students changed as well. And so you had less behavioral issues as well. Absolutely. And just to touch back to, to Ken's question about kind of, um, the experience. And I know you were talking about from, from your end in the classroom, I think the concept you have to, to wrap your head around is, um, 
so much less attached to the current curriculum you're used to and it allows for some creative thoughts um, but the main thing that I got um, as we kind of dove into MCL was I knew that I was addressing my kids needs so much more um, and everything that I was doing was using utilizing kids learning um, opportunities so much wiser and, and really what I mean by that is I may have a few third graders a few fourth graders and a few fifth graders, but I can feel pretty confident that they're all around the same learning status on a certain concept, that I'm not necessarily expanding to accommodate all different levels, but really focusing on the skills. And I felt like I was really drilling down. My, my past is learning support, so it felt like very focused learning every moment. And I unfortunately, I'm talking about it past tense right now because it's not as easy to do. But once we're able to get back to it, it just is every moment that you're teaching, you feel like all the kids are around the same level, uh, regardless of how old they are. And um, that is just so invigorating as a teacher to say, hey, I have kids that I I know are all the same level. Not that I'm ignoring this group because I'm having small groups. It's, hey, everything I do is really purposeful. I would agree. And then also like that top end was super fun too because you got to do so many acceleration things and like projects and yeah, it was, that, that was, that was fun. And the bottom end, the bottom end, sorry to cut you off, is realistically your behavior issues are based off either frustration or boredom, right? That's a view that I often see. So your frustrated kids are the ones that feel like they're not getting learning at their level. Um, so they're placed in an environment that if they can kind of accept a school-wide mantra of this is something that we're adopting and, and either A, you kind of get on train and you work hard and you push yourself out of that, or I'm not singled out because where I'm at and the vice versa, the boredom isn't the case because they're in control of their own destiny and they can accelerate, like you're saying, and, and have really well, neat opportunities. I don't know if it's relevant or not, but when I visited your school, I remember, uh, Matt, I remember all your students knew their, I don't know, some sort of score that they, and they all knew it and they, they were so excited to like go to the next try to get that score up or down. I don't, I'm not explaining it very well, but I remember that being really um, meaningful to the students and I thought that was cool. Yeah, so there's, uh, in the different elementary as well as uh, upward, um, there's just kind of, it's almost like a, I, I prefer to refer to it as a percentage uh, of like how far you've gotten, but consider it very similar to like a Lexile level of where that would fall. Um, they recognize kind of their ranking and um, all their materials kind of have that. We have some color-coded systems related to whichever level. I could almost use the martial arts built uh, kind of analogy to it, but um, it's not something to be ashamed of by any means, but it's very obvious of where they're heading for their different materials. And um, every time we have these opportunities to, to kind of prove understanding or level up, uh, it is a, a huge production in that sense of, hey, here, this is this is how far you jumped. This is how far you've come. And it's a huge celebration. Um, and that's, I think, the, the absolute very coolest is um, them being aware, um, them being cognizant of how much effort they put in and where it translates to. Um, and 
um, just the the whole school wide acceptance for really promoting promoting everyone regardless of who your homeroom teacher is to to keep on getting better and, and the possibilities that they have based off their effort. So it, it really sounds like um, the what's what's great about this is the systems of the mass customized learning are creating really effective bigger picture differentiated groups versus me looking at my 30 kids and differentiating in my classroom. So what I want um, the two of you to do is offer advice to teachers that are not in a mass customized learning district, but they want to differentiate more effectively. They want to really try to personalize the experience for the students where you know, these five students, they can get to the end of this unit while the other three or the other 10 or these five are in the middle or they're still on lesson one because they're struggling with this skill. They really want to try to reach more of that personalized experience. So what are some specific actions or um, strategies that they can use to be able to effectively teach in that way? So I would say, um, first of all, you would need to focus on mastery of a skill. So um, that's that's kind of the, the whole concept is, is this whole idea of mastering a skill and taking, taking the timetable off of it. So however you're going to figure out um, that they've mastered the skill, um, that's, that, that's uh, I guess, the crutch of it. But then um, from... From there, I, I think you could do a couple different things. I, I like to use hybrid grouping in my in my classroom. So even in that kind of uh, ability group that I was teaching, I would still break it down again into into like three subgroups um, that I could use uh, that I could differentiate, and um, yeah, just change up the way I'm instructing and the way I'm assessing. Use the traditional like uh, independent, collaborative, and um, uh, instruction. Correct. Yes. Yeah, and I, just to kind of jump off yours, I think so. Curriculum and understanding mastery is huge. I also think that creating student profiles and portfolios are huge. I had a, an observation once that I'll remember. Actually, the principal Wade that we were talking about, um, who said, "You're doing a huge disservice by." the kids not visualizing their progress. And so it really hit home that they don't understand what numbers mean. And it was really simple for fluency, okay, this week or this month, and we go and we graph it, but um, they don't necessarily understand or, or at the elementary level, looking at a grade book doesn't translate. They don't remember what they had last week um, or what these activities translated to a better or worse score. So I think one of the things that we emphasize is, um, and one of our fifth grade teachers heard about MCL, absolutely loved it, um, and just took off of it that, and created student profiles that would kind of self-log and you would take, here are the standards for each grade level and um, kind of, for a nerdy example, use an amortization schedule style, right? Like how how quickly can you work through this, this uh, skill set to get uh, to where you want to be. And so that profile of their math concepts with mastery, their reading concepts, their writing skills, um, 
as the main three um, were really cool to see in visual form and, and to have these pro portfolios that, I mean, it changed everything about our learning. We, we went from in-person parent-teacher conferences to student-led conferences, and um, the kids created, and uh, we talked about this, Ken, um, it was a huge opportunity for student choice to come through as the kids identifying how they wanted to prove their learning. And uh, realistically, us using, wait, as you were saying, a rubric of identifying, did it meet the competencies that were necessary? Did it achieve, but allow freedom and flexibility from the kids to explore their own creativity, go back against the old Ken Robinson TED talk of, are we creating these opportunities that really bring out the the um, personality of each kid? The um, one thing you both talked a lot about uh, that you didn't just mention now, but it was, it was natural in your conversation when you were talking about MCL in your districts is the use of data. You both referenced it multiple times. And if your district is not uh, making concerted efforts to use it, or they're they're collecting data in a format that doesn't really seem to benefit you on the classroom level, I would highly encourage to really just keep it simple for yourself and do an exit ticket every day. Try to use some sort of tool like a simple Google Form or Socrative or those those formative tools that are out there to automatically grade it for you. And the other piece of that is put 10 minutes in your lesson. And just call it um, uh, exit ticket support or something like that. And I would put this in my plans in every subject, every class. And I knew I had 10 minutes set aside in my lesson where I was going to do something based on the results of that exit ticket. It might be a, wow, nobody in my class understood what I taught today. So those 10 minutes, everybody is going to review this with me. Or it could be these three kids didn't understand it. I'm going to pull them for 10 minutes. But just doing a even a single question exit ticket on a daily basis and building in that time to have it there is a great way to start towards that idea of really using data to differentiate with your students. Um, so I kind of want to shift gears and circle back to the conversation that we were on uh, before, Wade, with the, the your community. Does your district do anything or your school do anything in terms of focusing on the whole child or SEL or programs like that to really try to support the students um, in addition to the curriculum? Yeah, I, so we, we partner with um, some faith-based organizations and some initiatives in our, in our area to um, supply uh, like I said, resources, um, actual physical resources like shoes and clothes um, to our students and food. Um, and we do have a full-time um, counselor as well uh, that works in our school and provides a lot of mental health um, uh, programs uh, for, for our support. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> for our students. Um, but uh, a new one that we have um, this year, which is pretty cool, um, we have uh, we've partnered with you. I think it was UPMC, and they are bringing in an actual um, an actual doctor once a week, uh, so that students can meet with um, a doctor 
and uh, check prescriptions or whatever um, so that they can get um, kind of that health care that was missing uh, for a lot of them. We have a mobile dentist, which is pretty cool. Um, maybe you guys have that too, but it's a it's a program where students can um, see a dentist at no charge as well. So, yeah, there and that's the the thing that I I think is amazing is slowly but surely. I mean, it's very publicized um, the needs in urban environments, and I don't want to downplay easier or harder, um, but. The rural environments get what seems to be left in the dark so much more. And part of it is it's so difficult to get around. It takes so long to get even from school district to school district. And um, I remember my interview um, with the district I'm with saying that our school district is almost 100 square miles. And we have something like, I don't know, less than a thousand kids in the entire district. And it's just an outrageous size to have such a small population where I grew up a thousand kids could push a single building pretty easily um, and, and so I know from from my end when you when you talk about these services um, and, and even your role in the classroom I know that you uh, you joyfully did not kind of classify yourself as a grade level teacher, which is traditional in MCL. But I think what what did you feel um, specific to where you live were added benefits or added challenges by being um, so much more than just an instruction provider, um, especially uh, for so many years in either traditional classroom or even this MCL in, uh, kind of version? What, what were those added challenges by being in the rural environment that you felt specifically you needed to deal with? I think, I think um, right off the bat, um, I needed to uh, prove myself to the community. So it's a community that's local to me. I grew up really close to it, but I didn't go to school in that community. So I, I had to kind of be initiated into that community. Um, and that was a challenge. Um, in itself but then I think once you have that that um, trust from the community it's very rewarding because um, parents will come to me and ask me for advice or uh, whatever for their for their kid and, and and I have no no issues with parents who um, who, who they're always looking for the best for their kid and and so they'll come to me and ask for advice and and I never have a problem they, they, they never have a problem with what I recommend so if I say a kid needs counseling or whatever I never I never get any pushback anymore so I think the advantage of staying in that community long enough to um, build that trust and prove yourself um, comes with the advantage of uh, I don't know being able to uh, be part of that community and offer as much support as I can. I, th I think that's fantastic. And, and what I, what I love that you're talking about is even if you're not teaching in a rural area or an urban area, which are very different, but all at the same time are very similar in terms of high needs for students. Um, you teach in a, you know, let's say a much more, um, uh, prosperity, uh, that's not the right terminology, but the high income area, um, 
every kid has needs at home, whether it is, you know, not enough attention from parents or parents are busy or short term things where somebody is sick or or parents are trapped. There's a million things that could be going on at home and our jobs are so stressful and busy that it can be very easy to forget about what happens from 4 p.m. until 8 a.m. the next day. Those hours that the students are not in front of you. And I just think it's really important for everybody to remember that, regardless of the outlook of your community, is that these students have lives outside of school. And that life can have a huge impact on their behavior, on their academic success, and really what they need from you in general. And although it's not our job to know every detail of what's going on at home, it is our job to be aware of um, how the student feels that day and to really make sure that you are making a concerted effort to to stay connected with the, with the students. Um, and I think you've offered a lot of great strategies and specific insight into, into how you can do that. So if it's okay with you, Matt, I'd like to transition into our our next uh, segment of the show, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a, a, a deeper look at one of your lessons, Wade. Um, so we're gonna ask you six questions back and forth um, to just try to get a picture of of something that you've taught in your classroom. This could be your favorite lesson, your students' favorite lesson, or one that you just think our audience would um, really enjoy to learn more about. So the first question is: Is this a single lesson? Or is it more of like a unit overview kind of long-term project? Okay, so I'm going to take your question and I'm going to kind of flip it a little bit just so you know. I know, I know you're not expecting this, but this will <laughs> be okay. Um, just trust me here. Um, so, I trust you. <laughs> so so I, I have, I'm, I'm going to switch it in that I, like I have this dream lesson that I want to teach. And I, and I, I love it. I had it all ready to go. Um, last year, but then we we were off in the spring and it didn't work. And so I'm I'm kind of gonna if it's okay with you, uh, I want I want to talk about that, but also I want a little bit of your input too. So does, is that fair? I think I think that is a fantastic <laughs> idea. Like um, okay. I'm really excited, and it just goes to show that it's so important to ask for advice ask for ideas, uh, bounce ideas off your colleagues. If you have instructional coaches in your district, even the 2020 Rural Teacher of the Year National is still asking the brainstorm. So it no, there's no pride in education. All right. So it's a lesson you are hoping to do. So I'll repeat my first question. <laughs> Let um, me set it, it up for you. Yeah. If that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, all right. So, so when I was when I won the the national award, I was able to speak in um, Colorado and had an amazing experience. Um, and so, on the plane back from Colorado, I sat by this man, and he was um, studying this book, like this this manual, intently um, for to to get his hunter safety course um, certification. And I was, I was like really like trying to figure this out, and and he was just so intent about it. And so uh, the more I like kind of observed the situation and what was going on, I thought this is exactly what I'm asking my kids to do on their own. 
but I'm using like texts and stuff that they just don't care about. And here's this man who's like studying hard this nonfiction text, all of the diagrams, all of the all of the things on his own, so that he can get a certification, right? And so my my dream here is to plan a lesson or plan a maybe even a whole unit where um, the student gets a certification at the end of it and so and using like real text and real everything but I, w I want it to be something that is applicable to elementary because I teach primarily this year fifth grade um, so I'm fifth grade is kind of like that year of hunter safety course stuff so my initial plan last year was to bring in a bring in a um, a speaker and and have them go through the whole hunter safety course, get the manual, um, and uh, and end up with a certification that they can use. And so I I, I brought it to a couple colleagues and and they um, found a couple other certifications like babysitting and um, first aid that could be done as well. So. Uh, that's my idea. I think it could be super uh, valuable and it gives students something that they can take with them forever. That's awesome. What yeah. do you think? Um, Phenomenal. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really excited about that idea. That's uh, And I want to dive into a little bit more. So yeah. um, you, you kind of already answered Matt's question. Do you um, want? Should we deviate deviate from your questions? I know Ken, you love sticking to this format, but should we just talk about it, the lesson? We've only done it a couple times. Yeah, I'm, I'm super passionate about the format. Um, no, well. we, can, we can deviate. Um, so, uh, but actually, Matt, your second question I think is is very appropriate right now. So why don't you go ahead and ask that? Well, related to um, kind of this awesome. Uh, certification program, I think the, the next question has to be um, related to um, kind of what subject area would this really be aimed towards? Um, I know under the MCL um, kind of concept, we spend a lot of time trying to um, uh, wrap a lot of different curricular areas into one. And I'm assuming that you would kind of pull in a bunch of them into this, but um, I know grade level, it's pretty specific with you and, and time of year. I know a lot of times we look at the end of the school year when we can do flexible things, but I guess mainly related to um, hitting all of your content standards and, and um, all of the requirements uh, for this activity. Where, where would you say subject-wise you would focus um, on? I think I would narrow it down to um, reading and understanding nonfiction text. Um, I think that's a life skill that is applicable and it could go across subject area. So that would be, yeah, that was my idea. <laughs> that's actually, um, I'm glad you asked that question, Matt, because I think that's such a great um, perspective for teachers to hear. As someone who constantly did crazy things like this, I really was able to justify almost all of it to a specific standard like you just said. And they're going to be so much more engaged on that standard than with the traditional style of what you would typically do. Um, right. So you kind of already talked about your objectives for the lesson. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to steal Matt's next question. What do you envision your class looking like 
and more specifically the students what do you when you're gonna carve out the time for this what do you envision the students doing when they're in your class so what i envision is more of a seminar based instruction um with uh maybe even like breakout sessions of um deep dives into the informational text and studying it i love it I love the the idea of the kids being in a seminar type scenario where they're um, getting access to the instruction that they really need. And it really kind of embodies the MCL way, um, kind of continuing on that uh, that um, side of things. I know most importantly for us, uh, we care about the kids, but we also have to consider what are the uh, facilitators, the teachers doing in this scenario. And um, I guess that comes down to through this student driven activity, uh, what do you see your role as the uh, instructor for this activity? Yeah, I think my role then would be to check for understanding and like hit those those levels of mastery because and that and that that's where you have to try to be careful with this because you 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 do want all of your students to master this and get that certification. So you have to, I think, um, kind of develop some sort of gate um, that leads to that mastery so that you don't leave a kid who thinks they're going to get the certification and then leave them devastated that they don't. Um, so yeah, or, or like come up with some sort of, I don't know, alternative thing. I, yeah, that's, that's, that's the tricky part. Um, but yeah, for me and my role in, in the classroom, I think that would just be yeah, that checking for understanding and um, making sure everybody's kind of on the right path. Are you a certified hunter yourself? Yeah, I am, yes. What about first aid? <laughs> yes, yeah. What about babysitting? No, I'm not certified in well, babysitting. As a, as a teacher, are we, are we certified to babysit? <laughs> Uh, you're a teacher and a father, so I'm pretty sure you, uh, you've been grandfathered into that. But the reason I ask that is, you know, what if a teacher is listening to this and says, I love this, I'm doing this next week. Should they feel like they have to be certified in everything that their students are potentially going to pursue? I don't think so, but I think, like, why not yourself? Like, why not you get it as like with your kids? That's what I would say. Like when I when I got my hunter safety um, certification, my dad did it with me, and I remember the uh, I remember the the game officer being like, "Um, sir, you you don't you already have this. You don't need to do this." And he was like, "No, I'm 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 gonna do it again because my kid's doing it. So we're doing it together." Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say, yeah, I, I would do it again, whatever the certification was. That's great. So our last question, and Matt, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin this a little bit. Our last question is typically, at, you're talking about a lesson that you have done, and we want you to offer advice to yourself for the next time that you teach it. So instead, uh, I'm going to turn this question to Matt and I, and I'll start with you, Matt. Based on you know the ideas that Wade has given us, what advice do you have for him to uh, pursue and tackle this this awesome idea. Before I give advice, I I, I guess I want to kind of narrow down real quick. Um, Wade, when when you've been dreaming of this activity, have you uh, considered trying to do uh, something that 
everyone's doing an independent study or kind of narrow it down that you kind of select a few of the activities you'd like the kids to work through um, and they're selecting amongst those options? I guess I'll ask that before uh, providing any advice. Yeah, so um, initially we thought, and, and I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of my, my team members too, this isn't just me, um, but initially we thought um, everybody, sh just, just for ease of, of trying to figure this out, everybody doing the same, um, but as we started to look at resources that we had available, um, we thought we could, we could give them a choice of like three, those three. Um, and that would be, that would at least give them some choice in the, in the matter. So, so I asked that question about narrowing down because I think that's an important thing that we get lost in too many times. And, uh, uh, I think of it frequently when thinking about things like, flip classroom. I am an all or nothing person. So I want it to represent exactly my dream the first time out. Uh, even if that's the at the sacrifice of my sanity, it seems sometimes. Um, I, I think a few of the things when tapping into this is there are things you have to consider. First off, narrow it down at first. And I know it's kind of sacrificing it for the first time going through with the kids, uh, providing less choice, less freedom, which we want to provide them, but allows you to navigate the pathway of um, what is successful and what is not successful in a huge new activity for your kids which allows you next year to come back or the next time you have the opportunity to teach this uh, activity to feel comfortable to expand and expand and expand. And uh, the other main thing that I would have to um, share is to tap into your resources. Obviously, um, Wade, for your scenario, you have a great pulse of your community. But for anyone listening, um, realistically, it comes down to uh, tapping into the resources available in your classroom, within your school, within the community. Uh, it's unbelievable how people rise for something that is meaningful uh, and going to benefit kids in that local area. Um, whether it might be a parent works at a factory that has extra of this material, or uh, this mom works in a program that has their own certification program that you didn't know about. I think the amazing thing is we as teachers try to manage everything and we feel like we need to build everything from scratch. And too many times there are much easier, much quicker solutions. And to be honest, much better solutions, authentic, maybe a little less work for us. I think that's a, a huge thing too. Um, if someone will take something off our plate, that allows us to focus our energy on other things. So between that, the idea of like starting small and building up to what you ideally want, as well as kind of opening up your doors to allow other people to have hands in uh, what this becomes, because I can absolutely see a dad or a mom or a grandfather or an aunt or an uncle chipping in to, to help kids achieve a goal because who doesn't find that 
satisfying and worthwhile. Um, and especially if they have added connections to hardware stores or um, specialty programs or um, government officials, these type activities that are meant to help uh, to, to bring that into our own classroom, uh, especially for an activity like this, where the kids can go out and find their own passion, I think uh, it allows it to be one of you and many of them and kind of crowdsourcing altogether to really benefit uh, the end product uh, as the, the main focus at the end of it. Yeah, I like that. So I have two uh, very different pieces of advice. Um, my first would be similar to Matt's is, um, I was going to ask the same question, is I would encourage you um, to try to give them as much choice as possible in the certifications that they can pursue. Uh, because I think that'll, that your idea started with this man who was so intensely diving into this hunter certification. And he was so intensely doing that because he wanted the certification. So that's at the heart of this project is that, that desire. So the more choice you give, um, the better opportunity you're going to give to those students to have that passion. Um, you know, even I was thinking the first thing that popped in my head was a Google certification. I mean, how cool would it be for a student to have a Google certification? Um, who knows what they could do with it? They might be able to support um, other adults that that need help with that. There's there's the possibilities are endless. Um, and so, you know, I would be confident in in allowing them to pursue things that you're not an expert in, kind of like you said, pursue it with them if you want to. Um, it's kind of funny way we were talking about this before the interview. I had students of mine two years ago actually work with Wade's wife, who is a teacher, teaches French. And I did a genius hour uh, project in my classroom that spanned the year. And I had two students that wanted to learn French and it eventually turned into them writing a uh, children's book that was, that had a story behind it, but the goal was to teach kids some French. Well, I don't know any French. And so I met Wade and I actually connected and Skyped with his wife and she um, taught them a little French, checked all their, their wording and stuff. So just the idea that like this lesson is such a fantastic idea, try not to limit it as much as possible. Um, but you also have to be comfortable yourself. Maybe the first time it's somewhat limited and then you realize like, wow, I can open this up to anything. Um, my second piece of advice would be when they're working and you talked about their role and your role, really um, focus your role on what you're an expert at, and that's teaching the curriculum. It's teaching the nonfiction reading skills. Um, it's it's teaching that, that reading for understanding, all those things. You can utilize a lot of the same mini lessons that you have already. Let the students become experts of other things. Like, you know, um, you have someone that's really good at finding research articles or finding resources, or you have someone that's really good at maybe um, taking notes in a certain program or whatever that is, and encourage the students when, when someone asks you a question, you know, Mr. Allett, how do I do blank? And it's not that curriculum focus. You can say, hey, you know what, go talk to Johnny because he's the expert in doing that. And it'll really invigorate this um, more empowering learning experience in your classroom that I've, I've seen with projects that are kind of similar in the idea that um, the students were able to figure things out on their own. 
Um, and it just it creates a really powerful learning environment when the students start to feed off of each other, especially when you call them an expert of blank. Um, so those would be my two pieces of advice. I got to say, no matter what, my only true advice is make sure you do this project because this is awesome. <laughs> this yeah, is thanks. really, really awesome. And Matt, you need to do it too. I, I agree. I, I would be lying if I wasn't sitting in through this interview thinking about how I can incorporate into my own classroom some of these suggestions and activities because it is an awesome idea. And I think what we always strive for is authentic learning environments. So something that the kids are going out, finding something they're passionate about, that intrinsic motivation is high. Yeah, I, I foresee myself pulling some of these features into my classroom. I'd love to hear how it turns out for you and and share how it's going with me. Definitely. Definitely. Very good. All right. So we're going to transition into our last segment called the exit ticket. Um, and so we're going to ask you four, four questions, same four questions we ask all our guests. And the first question is, what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? Yeah. So I think I... Um... I every year I go over this poem by uh, Justin McRoberts and it's really quick it's really short it says um, it is in no in no way an exaggeration to say that we change lives and even save lives by showing up and doing what we promise to do so I think um, like going back to your question I think the, 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 the most important thing we can do is to show up and, and do the thing that we promise to do. And if we ask that of ourselves, we can ask that of our students, and um, that just creates a, a culture of, of learning um, and respect, I think. All right, so you've obviously had um, some great advice to get to the point that you're at right now. Um, the question is whether it is from another colleague, a supervisor, or even a student, what is the best advice that you feel like you've ever received that has made a direct impact in your classroom? Um, I think um, thinking about that, like going back to um, like college professors, I think they always said you you get out of it what you put into it so i think uh i think that would be the best advice um i as, as that was the question the advice right um that i that i would give yeah yeah to probably yeah um you'll get out of it what you put into it um and i i tell students that too especially now with virtual learning <laughs> That's great, Wade. Thank you. Uh, third question is, we know how the school year can go in waves where there's just times of days or weeks where, where it's just a huge struggle. Everything is piling up on us. It's becoming stressful. What is something that every educator needs to hear to power up in that moment of struggle? Um, I think right now what I'm telling a lot of my colleagues is um, you, you just do your best, you know, like it's it's a weird year and it's it's a hard there are a lot of hard parts of this and but nobody can ask you to do more than your best and so if you're doing your best it's enough and um don't let anybody tell you that your best isn't enough so that's what i would that's what i would say to 
somebody having a hard day. <laughs> so as you can tell through this episode, uh, Wade, you've shared some awesome things. I think most importantly, we want to know how do we keep in touch, uh, see some of your great ideas, follow along with some of the things you're working on in your classroom, um, and, and just kind of tune in to what's going on in your world. What's the best way to get in contact with you, social media, et cetera? Yeah, so um, I use I use Twitter pretty pretty regularly uh, and professionally, and that's at Wade Owlet. Um, I also have a classroom Instagram that I'm not as good at keeping up with, um, but that is at Wade Owlet as well. Um, I think I'm speaking this June at a conference. I'll I'll have information on my Twitter um, for that as well. So yeah, I think that's probably the best way or uh, email wade.owlet at gmail.com. Wade, thank you so much. This interview has been outstanding. I really enjoyed our time together. You've shared some real insights into your community and the um, needs that your, your community has, as well as how you and your school district are providing that to the students, as well as some great actionable tips for our classroom. And I'm super excited about the lesson that you shared with us, and I can't wait to find out how that goes and, and be involved throughout the process as, as you tackle that later in the school year. Uh, Wade's, Wade's information that he has provided will all be linked on this podcast show notes page, and you can find that at powereduup.com slash show four, powereduup slash show four. Wade, thanks again. Uh, for all of our listeners and viewers, if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button, whether you are listening on your podcast network or you are watching on YouTube, and consider doing the opposite of what you are currently doing if you want to enjoy the show in a different way. Uh, also, please, if you have not already, join our community of educators, myself, Matt, and Wade, and all the other educators on powereduup.com. Become a free member today, start engaging in the forums, asking questions, sharing lessons, sharing ideas, and really growing your PLN um, as we grow that network together. You can find us on all of our social media platforms on Instagram, Twitter, all at PowerEDUUp. And we appreciate your, you listening today. We appreciate that you're coming back each week to us, and we look forward to connecting again. So Matt, why don't you take us on out of here? As we power down this episode, hopefully we leave you feeling extra powered up. We'll talk to you next time, guys.